I want you to look with me briefly at the outline titled A Medieval Miscellany. A Medieval Miscellany. And um, again, I'm not going to have time to go through all of this. I hope you will read it nonetheless uh, after our session. But I have commented thus far on a major argument affecting early Christianity. Uh, by the Middle Ages, and that is from uh, 900 on to uh, 1300 uh, at the outset of the, of the Renaissance, there are other lines of thinking in the Catholic Church that begin, begin to solidify. Um, one has to do with the relationship of church and state. If you'll notice the first topic, the rise of Christendom. Uh, the term Christendom is a holistic term. What we talk about Christendom is a total culture in which the Christian faith vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, Roman Catholic Church, if you're thinking of Western Christianity before the Reformation, and the civil authorities join hands to preserve and extend Christian civilization. Uh, one of the things that many people don't realize, unless they've studied a bit in early church history, is that there is a developing opinion in medieval Christianity, as it was also among the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and Knox, that the Great Commission given by Jesus to his disciples applied only to that first generation. Uh, except for the fact that the disciples of the disciples also extended churches. So the process of missions, according to uh, the Catholic Church, or at least the initial missionary advance of the church, was on the shoulders of the apostolic church. And then once the church was established, and of course to Roman Catholics that would mean the Catholic Church, it was the responsibility of the church through the parish system, that's P-A-R-I-S-H, not P-E-R-I-S-H, although Protestants preferred to spell it that the latter way, um, when they looked at the Catholic Church, the, um, the role of the parish was to preserve the gains of Christendom and, uh, in cooperation with the civil authorities, maintain a Christian presence. Now, when you couple that with the developing practice of infant baptism, the whole idea of come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, the nerve of that, the core of that is lost. Because a common assumption in medieval Christianity was if you are living in a Christian parish and uh, you have parents who are communicants, uh, however faithful, however irregular they may be, who are Catholics, then uh, you're a part of the covenant community. Interestingly enough, the, the magisterial reformers like Luther and Calvin continued that idea that bapt, infant baptism is a sign of a grace yet to be received. The hope was that uh, in later years, age 12 or following, uh, confirmation would take place, which would be a genuine confirmation of the faith that was sponsored 
or faith extended by the parents and godparents of the child. But to be born in the political community was the same thing as being born in the church community. So, so you have this amalgamation of church and state. Now, see, we will say a few words a bit later about how Anabaptists protested against that in their strong insistence upon the separation of powers, the separation of civil authority from church authority for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was they were the ones being persecuted more than any others by both the church and the state. So, now, what solidifies this uh, symbolically is the coronation of Charles the Great or Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day of the year 800. The Roman Empire in the West as a political entity had fallen around 476 to the barbarians. Western Europe was fragmented. The early Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages, were ushered in. And there is an almost total breakdown of central authority. You have authority wielded by powerful lords, to whom needy people or others attach themselves as vassals to be protected, to have food provided for them, and to serve in the Lord's army as needed to protect his territory. So it's a chaotic period. Now following this, 700s and 800s, there are many who want to reestablish the Roman Empire, but now under Catholic auspices. They want this, therefore, to be not just the Roman Empire, but the establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. Voltaire said it was neither holy nor Roman, but that's an argument we don't have time to pursue here. But So the, the concern was to establish a totalist Christian civilization under the auspices of the Roman Church. And the belief was strong that this could be accomplished and that the church and the political order working as partners could affect essentially the kingdom of God on earth. That's as radical a post-millennialism as you would ever want to find, that Christ is going to reign in and through that order. And if you didn't believe that, then you're a heretic, you see. So that's, that's the meaning of, uh, of Christendom. Uh, it's important to note that when the Protestant Reformation developed, the magisterial reformers in various ways continued that cooperation with the state, and uh, which caused radical believers a lot of trouble in terms of being exiled, imprisoned, tortured, being put to death. Now another way this solidification takes place, this uh, uh, creation of a system that uh, provides spiritual security for believers from the cradle to the grave is the sacramental system. In the early years of Christianity, there were two what we would call sacraments of the church, baptism and the supper. The first form of baptism uh, and mode of baptism was adult believers' baptism by total immersion. Sprinkling and pouring are later variations for a variety of reasons. There's a little book uh, called the Didache. The larger title of the book is The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It's not in the canon, but it was a book that was used widely by churches, especially in, in Syria, as a church manual. It gives instruction on 
worship. It gives instruction on moral behavior. It gives instruction about the Lord's Day services. It gives instruction about baptism and fasting. And there's an interesting entry in the, uh, the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And this, by the way, was written sometime between 110 and 115, so it's very early. It's one of the sub-apostolic writings, meaning one of the first writings that uh, circulated among Christian communities other than the apostolic writings, the writings in our New Testament. And this uh, instruction on baptism is interesting. Said on baptism, it said that's the way all the topics are introduced in the little book on the on fasting on as to baptism. Baptize in this way. If you can't find cold water, use warm. Isn't that an interesting twist? You know, most Baptists today would say if you can't find <laughs> find warm water, use coal as an exception. But uh, it would say, if there is insufficient water for immersion, pour water over the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this was a concession that was made in areas where there was insufficient water for total immersion. Although pre- predating this, and also in the second century, there are uh, 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 archaeological finds of baptistries uh, that would allow uh, ample room for full immersion. But you begin to see, see these vari- variations develop, and when variations develop, then at, there comes a time where they become solidified as normal practice. See? In the Didache, the variant form of baptism was to meet a contingency, not to set down a universal rule for all time. But these exceptions begin to be gathered up in the Catholic tradition because, again, received tradition, local immediate tradition, whether oral or written tradition, by the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, what the magisterium says is acceptable tradition, is added to Scripture as basic instruction even though the church always says that scriptures are sui generis, that is something of their own, having their own unique value, uh, these other writings carry us along. They tell us about the history of the church and uh, the practices that are enunciated therein should take on authoritative uh, status, according to the magisterium. So over time, to the two sacraments of baptism and the supper, uh, you have uh, others. You have the confirmation, which uh, is a part of the system uh, that ha- it has meaning only as it's related to infant baptism. Now, infant baptism begins, oh, around the 7th or 8th century. But normative baptism is still adult baptism by the late 9th century. As you get farther in the Middle Ages, then it becomes an exception rather than the rule. Um, the third sacrament would be penance. Notice the term penance instead of repentance. And today, by the way, the sacrament of penance is called the sacrament of reconciliation. It's you know, a little, little more biblical in its, in its work. But still, what happens if you have godly contrition, that is godly sorrow for sin, that's a precondition of confession, although the church will accept attrition, which means fear of the consequences driving you to confess. 
uh, that uh, under circum certain circumstances acceptable. Confession of all mortal sin, a mortal sin is a sin which if committed separates you from the grace of God. And if you die in the state of mortal sin, you go to hell. You don't go to purgatory. You go directly to hell. If you die in a state of grace, according to Catholic teaching, uh, then you go to purgatory. Only the saints, those declared saints, and of course the saints par excellence, Jesus and Mary, uh, go immediately to heaven because they have more grace than they need for their own soul. Uh, the saints who go immediately to heaven contribute extraordinary grace or overage of grace to uh, a, a, a body called uh, the treasury of merit on whom, on which sinners like you and me and the, re you know, the rest of us can draw for at least a reduction of time in purgatory, if not outright removal from purgatory uh, to heaven. I said, where does all this come from? Does it come from scripture? Not really. Um, per, uh, the, the, you can argue that purgatory is a kind of extrapolation on 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, On no other foundation can a man lay than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. Be careful how you build thereon. If you build out of gold, jewel, precious stones, you know, that it will be purified, the fire will purify it. If you build out of wood, hay, and stubble, then what you build. Uh, will, uh, in terms of works, will be destroyed. The fire will purge it. The, the basic idea of purgatory is purging. The purging of sin and dross from one's life to provide, in a more purified form, the person to be ultimately transferred from purgatory to heaven. But so many of these sacraments, by the way, it, the, the, the sacramental system develops over many hundred years. The first two sacraments, as I've said, were baptism and confirmation, then penance and the wrinkles it takes on uh, occur over a period of several hundred years. The Eucharist, which by the way um, uh, is uh, a location of the real presence of Christ in the supper, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation is late appearing. We're looking at 10th, 11th, 12th century uh, development here. So uh, again, this, th these are doctrines that uh, are, have only a slim, if any, reference point in, in Scripture. Marriage and ordination are, are sacraments uh, in a, a, different, a distinct sense. This is for special occasions, as you know, for ordinance and then for those who... Uh, are uniting in marriage. And then last rites, the old name for it was extreme unction, it's called last rites, is preparation of a person who is near death or sometimes who has already died for uh, safe, safe passage to, uh, to uh, the other side, whatever that may mean. Uh, if there is any doubt in the priest's mind or the attending uh, minister's mind, then the whole ritual, you go through it, even though the person may have been expired for quite some time, you still deliver last rites. Well, according to the teaching of the church, all of these collectively provide a kind of security program. It's a Catholic version of social security from the cradle uh, to, to the grave. And um, this worked well uh, in the Middle Ages when uh, the, the church 
is growing in power and in influence and is able through its teachings, through uh, prominent teachers and writers, prominent popes and bishops and other leaders, build what I would call a sacred canopy over Europe. Which is the worldview of Catholicism is the whole of Catholicism. And so it's a beatific, uh, inspirited universe where uh, we are not alone and we have immediately at our disposal the sacraments. And more than that, the intercessory ministry of the saints who continue day and night praying for us. You see. You have a cult of Mary developing in this period of time. Pilgrimages in the Middle Ages were very, very popular. And the idea is if you participate in all of these things as a faithful Catholic, you know, you don't have to be a great theologian. You don't have to think about your faith all that much, except you need to agree with the teaching of the church. You have one freedom as a member of the Catholic Church, and that is the freedom to agree with the church. You do not have the freedom to disagree. Disagreement can get you into a peck of trouble. Like the old Dodge there, if you're in a heap of trouble, boy, if you, uh, if you disagree with Mother Church. Now, um, this, this is on the eve of the, um, of the uh, Reformation. And uh, what I want to uh, say here is that the, the medieval, if you look at the conclusion of this little outline, the legacy of the medieval church was indeed mixed. There are high points. I see one of the high points is Catholic mysticism. When, when you look at uh, the work of Ignatius Loyola, um, uh, when, I look, when you look at St. John of the Cross, the Dark Knight of the Soul, the host of, of mystical writers uh, provide rich uh, meditations uh, and insights on faith and pilgrimage and so forth. You have that. You have uh, here and there morally upright leaders who, <coughs> who adorn the church with their presence. But the, other than that, the story isn't a very uh, pretty one on the eve of the Reformation in terms of the overall moral tone of leadership of the church. The Renaissance popes, for example, were among the, uh, the most immoral popes within uh, uh, Christendom and the whole history of the papacy. Uh, Pope Alexander spent most of his time trying to find high-level jobs in government for his illegitimate sons. There were others who uh, frittered away their pastoral responsibilities in favor of gaining great amounts of money, land, holding other positions uh, as their own private benefits and leaving the ministry of the church go. Now, <coughs> in um, the remaining moments, I want to turn to the, um, to the Reformation. And uh, we want to look at Calvin uh, insofar as some elements of his teaching gather up the teaching of Paul and Augustine. Will the pastor tell me about the time? Okay, fine. Yes, ma'am. I don't have the Reformation. Well, it, uh, the, it's titled John Calvin and the Development... John Calvin and the Development of Calvinism. Yes. I'm sorry I didn't use the title uh, as I have it here. Again, I, I don't have time to go through the chronology here of the life of Calvin, uh, other than to say, if you look at page 2, um, under Calvin's theology, 
John Calvin belongs to the second generation of Protestant reformers. He was born a quarter of a century later than Luther. The two men never met personally, but highly regarded each other. Luther was impressed by some of Calvin's early writings, and Calvin called Luther his most respected father and a remarkable apostle of Christ. But the two men were very different in their makeup, in their outlook, in the way they understood uh, and uh, did theology. Luther was a trailblazer. In fact, uh, you ask, who, who uh, started the whole process? Well, there are pre-Reformation critics of the church that had a vital part to play in the Reformation, but in terms of the formidable trailblazer, it would be Martin Luther. And uh, whether people agreed with him or not, they had to contend with him. They had to argue <laughs> with him or applaud him, whatever. He is the, uh, the giant. And um, he was a trailblazer. He was creative. He was robust. He was a bold thinker with little regard for system. In many ways, he was crude. And uh, he had a starchy vocabulary sometimes in his address of his uh, enemies or those who had attacked him. But also could be very, very tender and loving and kind. Uh, just uh, sort of a mercurial person. Interesting biogra biographically. Calvin was less creative, but gifted with a powerful intellect and the capacity to bring order and clarity to his theological reflections. His thought illustrates what Ernst Trelch called the doctrinaire logic of men of the second generation. Now, this is an important insight, I believe. The first generation reformer has a role that is unique. This is the trailblazer, the one who... Uh, uh, charts new courses. Uh, he doesn't have time at this point to delineate in final or full detail what he is up to, but he sets forth the basic agenda. Um, technically speaking, Luther was not a systematic theologian. He was a biblical theologian. He was a teacher of the Bible, a fine exegete, a good translator, solid translator of Scripture. Whereas Calvin... Calvin uh, was uh, one who was very orderly. Uh, he brought clarity to his theological reflection. Uh, he had a powerful intellect. He wasn't as creative as Luther, but a powerful thinker. And uh, Calvin's theology cast a vision of God's majesty and sovereign action <clears throat> in the universe. J.S. Whale, the English writer, <clears throat> called Calvin's thought, cosmic theocentrism. Now, that, those are two big words that mean that his focus, Calvin's focus, is on the being of God. In other words, his theology is theology in the purest sense of the word, the study of God. And, uh, of course, he deals with all the related doctrines, but his focus is upon the glory and the majesty of God, the God who inhabits all creation. And the... Um, uh, the created order in Calvin's mind is the theater of God's glory. Calvin, as Luther, had a high view of Scripture. The words of Scripture are inspired by God. God uh, is sovereign creator, uh, majestic ruler of the universe. whole lot of emphasis upon the sovereignty of God. And, and the final analysis you have to do with God. Uh, he is the final arbiter of all that is. 
theologically in his mind, he, caused, he is the initial cause and the active cause and the efficient cause of all things. One of the problems of Calvin's theology for modern interpreters is that uh, if you're into accident and contingency, you're not going to find much of a partner with Calvin at this point, you know. Um, and uh, that there's a whole debate on this, as you know, this issue today. Uh, on the doctrine of sin, he draws heavily on Paul and Augustine, as did Luther. Man in his natural state is a sinner, a rebel against God, unable to save himself, not even desirous of saving himself until prevenient grace, the prior action of God's grace, uh, meets uh, humankind. Salvation is not something that the human being achieves for himself. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And with a little push from election by God, uh, that, uh, that comes to fruition. Predestination. Problem with Calvin here, he admitted it. Double-edged predestination. Double-edged predestination to righteousness or salvation, predestination to evil. Calvin called this the horrible decree. He, but he, his relentless logic wouldn't allow him to do otherwise. Um, the issue with Calvin is order. And God is the orderer. And all things must be fulfilled. Or if God's will at any point is frustrated, then uh, there, mean, there is some weakness or some disability in God. And what happens when you take that line, you have disastrous results, even as you have if you take the line of human freedom and accident, uh, you, you, run in, you run into some uh, uh, problems that uh, they come back to haunt Calvinism at various points along the way. We will see this when we look at uh, Reformed Orthodoxy a bit later and how the uh, argument of uh, God's sovereignty and God's uh, prevenient grace are dealt with at that point. The church and the sacraments, the, the reformers uniformly reduced the sacraments from seven to two, baptism and supper, returning them to the, uh, the ancient order. The church and the political order, let me say this and then we'll, uh, we'll break for lunch. Uh, Calvin was an aristocrat by nature and uh, was, as his theology laid out, Calvin was a law and order man. He wasn't a freedom man. If you, have, if you make a grid and put order on one hand and freedom on the other, he gravitated heavily to order. He was suspicious of too much freedom for the common man. Princes could handle freedom better. The educated could handle freedom better. <coughs> and I think one reason that drove, drove him to be skeptical about too much freedom for the common man uh, was the same thing that drove Luther to have that same skepticism. Uh, and that is that in the period of Reformation, especially in Germany in 1535 and in this period, there were a number of peasant revolutions in Germany. What was a lot of uh, destruction of property uh, killing of property owners. It was a, um, a situation that was created by the rescinding of the ancient hunting and fishing rights. This goes back to Old Testament times where corners of the field could be gleaned by peasants who otherwise could not support themselves. 
certain streams could be used as, as fishing streams and so forth, those privileges were shut out. It was a turbulent time anyway, and when that was added, uh, those restrictions were added, many of the peasants ro rose in uh, uh, power to, uh, to protest this. And this, <coughs> this elicited a response from Luther and Calvin, primarily because they did not want the predictions of the Catholic Church to come true, one of which was that if, you, if the Protestant reformers take over the church, there'll be chaos. Uh, there'll be social unrest to the max. And the order that we have struggled to maintain over many centuries will be lost. And uh, so, sure enough, when, when, anytime you had uh, an uprising that, that had the slightest reference to a re reformer or reformation movement, then the reformers would, would get judged uh, as uh, having an out-of-control mob, uh, foment fomenting riots, uh, fomenting uh, uh, disobedience to established authority. So what uh, Calvin wanted was order. Everything should be done in decency and in order. And that the structure of government should be a kind of aristocratic republic in which the property owners, I would say the old money, would be in control of the situation, and they, along with the middle princes or middle managers, should control society. They and they alone have a right to revolt. The common people don't have a right to revolt. question was asked of Calvin, well, what if the leaders are tyrants and uh, are brutal uh, in their treatment of their people? And uh, they said, well, let the middle princes, the lesser princes, take over. Let, let the battle be among the elite against the elite. You say, well, what if the middle people don't serve? Well, trust God and pray for that God will help you. you know? So there was no, no answer. In other words, if Calvin had been one of the founding colonists in the United States, there would be no United States of America. There would be no revolt against England. It was, that was just... That, that was his nature and his outlook. I will leave it there. And when we come back, uh, say uh, a little more about Reformed Orthodoxy and Baptist and Calvinism.